Benjamin Franklin told the crowds gathered to ask what kind of government it was. He said, a republic, if you can keep it. Well, it's a good thing there was no TV back then. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Well, we've all heard it said that there are no coincidences. I generally don't believe it. But a few days ago, Turner Classic Movies ran a film I remember not especially liking when it came out, and I figured, oh, what the heck, I'll watch it. The movie was Network, which was amazingly prescient when it came out way back in 1976. News as entertainment, ratings, a wacko playing emotionally to the evangelically-oriented millions in America. It's like I saw it again for the first time. It was amazingly, seriously, disturbingly prescient, seeing 40 years into the then future. Who could have imagined? Well, it seems writer Patty Chayefsky could and did imagine and showed us what was to come, playing to the cameras, having to be a star. That's the title of an essay on History News Network by our guest today, Catherine Kramer Brownell, playing to the cameras. Catherine Kramer Brownell is associate professor of history at Purdue University and author of 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. She's a senior editor for Made by History at Time, a leading media venue for explanatory writing by historians and other scholars. And boy, we all need a lot of uh, understanding of history. It seems to be lacking quite a bit now. Catherine, so much, uh, thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks so much for having me. Well, in 1976, when Network came out, we had a grand total of three networks, I believe. That was all there was. Today, those three would be seen as fighting for an ever-dwindling market share. What was fantastic about the movie Network was that it mixed entertainment with news. And it was a fantasy at the time. Unthinkable, frankly immoral, to mix entertainment with news. But today, with 24-7 news on like a, a thousand platforms, there's seemingly no line between reporting the facts and entertainment. It's all about keeping the advertisers happy and sending money your way. The mix of TV and electoral politics kicked off in 1960, really, I believe, with the Kennedy-Nixon debate. When people listened on radio, it seemed clear that Nixon won. But the cool, confident, and handsome visual performance by young Senator Kennedy of Massachusetts made all the difference in TV land. How pivotal a moment, Catherine, was that in terms of the next half century or more of media coverage of electoral politics. How how pivotal a moment was that? Well, it, it was a significant moment, but as a historian, I'm going to complicate things a little bit because that's what we do. Uh, because I think that there is a way to look at this as a very simplistic moment, that TV came on, uh, JFK did better, and all of a sudden, that's why he won the election. Um, and in many ways, uh, this is a myth, uh, a media myth that has evolved over the years. And it's something most of my students come into the classroom and they say, oh, those who listened on radio thought Nixon had won and those who watched thought Kennedy had won. 
But in fact, that is a myth that has developed uh, that scholars have really deconstructed and showed that this is a very small study that got blown out of proportion and that TV was one of many factors um, in a very close election that Richard Nixon almost won. Right. But what happens in the aftermath, and, and I think that's where this myth actually plays a really significant role and makes this a turning point because as people started to look back over the course of the 1960s in particular, at that at television in the 1960 election, at the TV debate, they began to believe that this was a transformative moment. Ah. And increasingly, it changed how people thought about political power and thought, wow, it was because of TV. And not just TV, but John F. Kennedy's particular approach to TV, where he really emphasized, he made it a priority in his campaign. He tried to, he turned himself very actively into a celebrity as a way to gain political power. And then people started thinking, wow, that's the ticket to political power. And they started to change their campaigns, none more so than Richard Nixon. Uh, a look at the, the difference between how he ran for president in 1960 versus 1968 really shows that media myth and that, that new way of thinking about media as a path to power was really put into action by the 1968 campaign. Uh, interesting. So, yeah, there, <laughs> there's always a lot of myth that's so familiar and easy. And history is always a bit more complicated. And it's important to understand <laughs> the difference. And uh, But people believe myth. And that's sort of what kind of we have to work with but it's really exactly it's important. and i think that's one of, yeah that's one of those really the, the the thing that's really interesting is that the people who are advising richard nixon in 1968 are people like roger ailes and they say who who's coming from this world of television and said take tv seriously the reason you lost in 1960 was because you didn't take it seriously and so that myth became became the reality um, uh, yeah. for people and how they shape their campaigns. Yeah, interesting. Take TV seriously. Boy, it is taken seriously now. Mm -hmm. Ted Turner was, you know, aside from Patty Chayefsky, he, Ted Turner was a bit of a visionary, too. He kicked off the 24-7 news cycle with CNN back in June of 1980. Boy, that was a long time ago. No one could have imagined <laughs> anything like Fox alleged news, which you say is an ideological echo chamber that treats politics as warfare. How does that, in your words, challenge the very operation of today's democratic institutions? And what if uh, TV had been around uh, the founding of this, uh, this country back in the uh, late uh, 18th century? Mm -hmm. Well, and one of the things that cable news in particular begins to do as a business model is to really embrace punditry and commentary. So not just reporting on the news of the day for 20 some minutes, the way that network news programs previously had, right. but a nonstop discussion of that news. And what CNN found was a really effective and affordable business model was something like, like Crossfire, where you had a left versus right uh, perspective kind of battling it out on the news. And so that's something that emerged as, again, very affordable because you just have two people who are talking at each other and kind of arguing. And then people started to tune in and kind of cheer for one side or the other. And, and I think it's this kind of combative uh, performance of politics um, and, and kind of the commentary around politics uh, that starts to take root in cable news. And then it's escalated significantly in 1996 
when you have, um, you know, CNN is just CNN. From 1980, there's really no competition in terms of a 24-7 cable news channel until 1996. And then you have MSNBC, which emerged um, at the beginning of 96, a partnership between Microsoft and NBC. And they didn't really take an ideological uh, point of view at the beginning. Their goal was really to kind of bring in younger voters and um, and really try to you know appear appear as this tech savvy um, television show where people could tune in and get their voices heard online um, as well as watching the program. And then of course Fox, which takes a very different business model. It capitalizes on the lucrative, very lucrative business model of conservative media that had been really decades in the making and had shown on radio programs like Rush Limbaugh's radio program that if you kind of treated the opponents as enemies uh, and kept people glued in to this conservative media ecosystem, then that could bring in a lot of money. And, And that's what Fox does. And so it really takes the trajectory of cable news into the more ideological um, combative programming that keeps people tuned in, again, cheering for their team um, against another team. And again, when you, politics is not supposed to, I mean, of course, there's a competition to politics, but it's also about passing legislation, getting certain things done. Um, and, and really, then it just becomes about cheering for your team and seeing the, the opposition, not as the opposition, but as the enemy. Wow, it, it is so different from how I, growing up in the 50s and 60s, how I thought the news was. I, I somehow thought that, that the news on TV uh, was, was different. It was unique. It was set aside uh, as something. There's Sure, you keep coming back to the fact that it's a business model, lucrative. And it's, that's like, seems to be what's dictating a lot of this stuff. And I, I, to see the news as, as having to be uh, part of a business model. And I wonder how that aspect of it, having to, to be mm-hmm. a, a moneymaker, uh, in your words, challenges the operation of today's democratic institutions. It's uh, the business model aspect of it is so important to understand. And, you know, during the era of network news, uh, as you mentioned, during the 1960s in particular, when you got the big three, the news was a moneymaker. It made them money by bringing in advertising and they celebrated the, the news as their civic contribution. And, and that they could make more money on entertainment, but they were going to secure that, you know, have a half an hour news coverage because they had the civic responsibility. Uh, of course, that did make money. Um, uh, you know, the CBS news programs brought in a lot of money, maybe not the same as some entertainment programs, but they brought in a significant amount of money. It also helped to uphold the regulatory system in which uh, there, they had the big three had a monopoly. That wasn't natural. That was by regulatory design. And with the FCC, uh, they could point to the news as their civic contribution that they were helping to using this position as a monopoly industry to inform the broader people about public affairs. Of course, um, only it's a very narrow sliver of what they're giving to the American people in terms of what public affairs, um, how it's defined, oh. whose perspective really creates it. It's very pro-establishment. Um, I really uh, uh, foregrounds and pays deference to uh, official sources coming from government. Doesn't necessarily include the viewpoints of women and minority and conservatives. And so there's a lot of frustration with this um, uh, with kind of how public affairs is covered 
And what I chart in my book is that during the 1970s, um, many people across the political spectrum agreed that, okay, we're unhappy with this narrow sliver of the news that we're getting. So let's embrace diversity as defined by the marketplace. And so then all of a sudden it becomes about, okay, let's have a range of perspectives and have the marketplace kind of dictate that we don't, businesses can really see what, what brings in ratings um, and try to appeal to different demographics. Again, communities of color, women, uh, conservatives, um, and you know, really aim and target the news towards them. But that creates, um, again, a very different business structure that's kind of more about fragmentation um, mm. and market segmentation rather than trying to find any common ground. Yeah, common ground. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> We're not seeing a lot of common ground these days, but it does seem like people like uh, the orange one, Donald Trump, got that message. And I don't see Democrats, I don't know. We, we talk about issues uh, and what can make changes for the better, but it, it's like Issues don't even matter so much. It's it, it amazes me how uh, do they do they like the person? Do they have a sense of do they like mm-hmm. him? And I got to tell you a little story. One year, as I was campaigning for re-election to the state senate here in New Hampshire at a factory gate, a woman coming out of the factory stopped for a few seconds and said, "I like your smile. I'll vote for you." <laughs> I was dumbfounded. But I took the support. I mean, she knew not a thing about any of my positions on the issues. I was just shaking hands. And today, here in New Hampshire, we have a governor whose popularity is untouchable. He's not running for re-election, luckily. He had a tremendous amount of free statewide TV time during the COVID pandemic. And his presence was just reassuring. It was like every day the governor was on and it was reassuring. No one had any idea what his political agenda, his legislative agenda was. He was, and nor how right wing he was. Uh, it, it didn't matter. And now Chris Sununu is adept, very adept at playing for the cameras. He has a nice smile. People vote for him. And it seems that that's all that counts. So let me ask you, when someone's amorphous likability is what separates winners from losers, how much potential damage does that do our very representative democracy itself, our Republican form of government? Please explain. Yeah, you, you've really targeted a key shift that happens in American politics over the course of the 20th century. As um, the, the political system shifts from one that is very organized um, and uh, by political parties and kind of this insider politics uh, where decisions about who's going to run for office are made behind closed doors. And if you want to kind of uh, rise or climb the party ladder, you do the work within a party. And um, and really, it's it's about partisanship that's very different from our current partisanship. Um, and but parties delivered something. They they would deliver jobs, right? They would deliver very concrete benefits um, for voting for a particular party. That party system ultimately breaks down. It comes more into the open. Um, uh, there are many critics of the, the, the way those kind of insider uh, political parties worked, um, uh, and again, how exclusionary they could be to different demographics. And so during the 1950s and the 1960s, and TV plays a really significant role, is it brings more people into the political process. And so you have things like primaries where someone can run, like John F. Kennedy could run in a primary 
and go outside the, the party structure and appeal to the people and get, get his support. But he does that by, again, as I mentioned earlier, by turning himself into a celebrity. Yes. It's a very specific media strategy um, that he uses to make people like him. It's an emotional appeal rather than saying, I'm going to deliver these concrete economic benefits um, through the New Deal, for example. He's getting people to see, to, to buy in emotionally and feel connected and, um, to him and really like him. And, and that's kind of that shift that happens is, of course, performance and communication have long been a part of politics. Um, but now it's really become the priority. And that has created what political scientists and scholars call this permanent campaign, that politicians are constantly campaigning. They're thinking nonstop about their media image because they have to create that constant emotional connection to their constituents to uh, monitor um, uh, that, that broader media image. And that becomes their priority not necessarily passing the effective legislation that mm. needs to be um, to, to really govern. So it's about this permanent campaign, not necessarily governing. Governing, which is, you know, it, it's what we're supposed to do. What, what mm -hmm. it was set up, up to do was, was actually governing. But uh, with the uh, permanent campaign, as you say, and having to always think about how's that going to play on TV? How's that going to play on TV? Uh, it, it, I can't help but think that it undercuts uh, a, a lot of the uh, good government, if I can use that phrase, that uh, we could have. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a key aspect of democracy, uh, celebrity, and how it's kind of taken over. Our guest today is uh, Associate Professor of History at Purdue University, Catherine Kramer Brownell, and she's author, author of 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox. And as I've aged, uh, and there's quite a bit of that, actually, as I've seen the inordinate <laughs> amount of political gravitas held by celebrities who don't necessarily intend to have political gravitas. Uh, now, right or wrong, Nixon in 1960, the belief is that he wasn't as good a TV star. and But it seems the power of Jimmy Carter's down-home smile very reassuring, very comforting. And I remember all the political cartoons always had him with a big smile. Reagan's Hollywood bona fides, all the way to Donald Trump on The Apprentice. It's like America has required their candidates to be stars. I often think, and this is a little bit out there, I suppose, I often think that wouldn't it be better if we had one head of state with no power, but great charm, and a separate head of government who needed that TV charisma. How much does the desire for celebrity, and you can think of so many these days, uh, people who think, well, you know, Taylor Swift is a big celebrity, maybe she should run for president. <laughs> Into, you know, how much does this desire for celebrity interfere with the effective democratic governance? Your thoughts? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting, um, it's a, I mean, it's a fundamental question that we have to grapple with today because there is this nonstop desire for celebrity that has only intensified over the past 30 or 40 years as celebrity itself has become more democratized. That uh, you used to have a celebrity um, where the Hollywood studio systems, again, this era of network television, uh, is a very limited amount of people that could really work up those ranks and kind of gain the star status. 
But then you have, you have cable television, you have the fragmenting of the media landscape, uh, you, the internet, social media, and now more and more people have that chance to kind of become a star, uh, to go viral, if you will. And, and that, again, is evens the playing field and decentralizes it. But that means that celebrity, um, how, how people are gaining celebrity, um, what works in terms of, again, the business structure of those different mm -hmm. mediums and the social media industries, it's more about, um, you know, generating controversy. That's what uh, is really at the root of modern celebrity. Um, you know, being controversial, um, being, um, uh, you know, g getting a lot of click clickbait, right, is because of people are stirring that controversy. Um, they're fueling angry emotions um and this is a, this is a very particular type of celebrity that has evolved with the media landscape over the past 40 years and so again thinking about how that translates into politics it's much more about causing a scene and causing a spectacle um and generating a media conversation about that um rather than any qualifications to write legislation to think about compromise right to think about what goes on behind the scenes and off the tv uh cameras that is actually at the root of what government is supposed to do causing a scene generating controversy and you know i i remember when when cable first came in i had I was so naive. What can I tell you? I, I had high hopes that that it could be more democracy, different points of view, able to get out there. But it's about the spectacle, and as as I believe, back in the early part of the twentieth century, especially in France, there was this uh, surrealist international which talked about the spectacle, the spectacle. They were way ahead of their times in talking about uh, you know what what pulls people in to look. And, and see. And of course, that easily translates into uh, money making for the, uh, the networks, the people that, that own the platforms for the, the spectacles. And uh, I just, I, I, and now, you know, there are on the internet, on, on the social media, I wonder if that is more hurt democracy and, and our ability to self govern. Or has it has it actually helped? What what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's probably some of both. Yeah, I think that's one of the really interesting things is that uh, you know I've studied I've studied the 1970s extensively, and a lot of changes that happen with media and politics during the 1970s, as people and again I cannot emphasize this enough across the political spectrum were very unhappy with the political structures, um, which were very much all about seniority. They were designed to um, eliminate new ideas and to not allow um, certain demographics to have a say in the political process. The same thing with the media environment. And so during, because there's new technology in the 1970s, because there's a lot of political frustration, um, that there's a lot of reform uh, to both the media and the political landscape. And in many ways, the reforms um, overlap and reinforce one another as they're looking to decentralize power. Uh, they're looking to allow for more transparency, to allow 
political structures to change uh, because um, they're frustrated with the lack of change uh, for so many decades previously. And this is true of the Democratic Party, of the Republican Party, and of people outside of party politics as well. And so, again, there's um, this desire that decentralizing information, um, bringing in um, more transparency, allowing political institutions to be more responsive to public opinion, that that could be beneficial for democracy. But then you decentralize everything. You allow more people to have a voice. And that means more from the extremes as well. Yeah. That, that's for sure. And uh, I was uh, traveling fairly recently. I was finally able to do that. Uh, and I came across uh, television news from Turkey, for example, and stories that there's a, uh, there's a, I can't think of the name of the, uh, the news company in, in England. Sky News. Yes, that's it. Sky News. Mm-hmm. Very, very different. And we'll see a lot of things that we don't see on American TV. That It seems like I don't know, it seemed like they were less uh, uh, dictated and jerked around by having to go to celebrities. And there's, I wonder about, you know, wouldn't it be, we're still, I mean, you talk about decentralizing information, and I'm not sure that's a good thing. I, I generally think it is, but it's still so centralized. I mean, how often do we hear about on, on our TV news, you know, the half an hour network news about uh, what's going on in Africa now with what China's doing there with the with the Belt and Road Initiative and these things that really do affect us and we're kind of missing out. Where am I going here with this? I don't know. There must be a question in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can pull out one. <laughs> I'm a historian. I can pull out anything. Um, but, you know, I think you you spoke to something that's really interesting is when I talk with my students, they don't get their news from network news shows. Uh-huh. They don't even get their news from cable news. They get their news from TikTok. They get their news from all of these different social media um, um, distribution points and, and figures. And so, and again, they might, might not be the most informed about that particular topic. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist because I see my students and I see that they're very critical and that they, you know, I do try to teach media literacy to think about who is, who's behind this message, what's the goal of it. And they understand that we always talk about, um, you know, the different agendas that are at play, but, but it is really interesting is that, you know, how people get the news, what information they're interested in. It's more what they're interested in that shapes the news that they're then getting. So again, that's what, you know, I talk about as this echo chamber, if you will, because people can just be informed on the issues that interest them and not pay attention um, uh, to anything that is going on in Africa or other parts of the world. And, and, I, and, and because of the business structure, of the news industry today, um, they're able to do that. And it, people who want to see what Fox has to offer are very happy with that. They don't want to look around to what MSNBC, which is hardly left particularly, but it's a little bit to the left. I mean, it's definitely to the left of, uh, well, pretty much everything is to the left of Fox News. But uh, choosing, you know, what what you want to see, boy, that's that's really different and it's mm-hmm. you know I, I i don't i can't imagine that uh, the founders not i mean they, they had a lot of brilliant ideas they weren't they weren't perfect but the what the founders would think of the american republic 
people uh, being able to choose the news that they see and and deciding that that's true and everything else is not true. That's got to be somewhat abrasive to the notion of a, a democratic republic. You know, it's it's interesting that that you bring that up because I have had a lot of conversations with my colleagues uh, who study media in the early republic, and they talk a lot about how you know mis- this concern about misinformation truly was at the forefront of um, many of, of of the founding generation. Um, Jordan Taylor has this really excellent book that's called Misinformation Nation, and it talks about kind of the politics of truth and that, you know, many in the the founding generation understood that at that time it's pamphlets and newspapers, uh, but they understood that, you know, there is this, uh, there's this business and political incentive to misinform as much as there is for our information. And, and it's really interesting is that's why there was such value placed on education um, and public education in particular to uh. make sure that the citizens, the citizens were informed, uh, that they could understand and they could, you know, again, have this what we call media literacy um, today, mm-hmm. but be able to to cipher through and have the critical thinking skills um, to, to see what is true, what is false, what are the biases as well. And clearly there are those uh, interests these days in the Republican Party, I don't know if any other party, but that want us to not learn history, to not, they de-emphasize the ability of students to, to think critically. They just want myth to replace mm-hmm. actual history. And that's some real dangerous mm-hmm. stuff, in my opinion, and I suspect yours as well. Yes, I, I fully agree. Because, you know, history is not just memorizing yep. dates and, and, and different facts. It's it's analyzing um, and interpreting and seeing different perspectives and, and learning and asking questions and how to find out the answer to those questions and understanding that there might be multiple answers. And it's that kind mm. of critical thinking that I think is so essential um, for um, for democracy today. And I, I do wonder, my, my older daughter graduated, uh, I'm pleased to say, from uh, Swarthmore College, and she's had a few years between her graduation and where she is now. And she talks about, there's a little surprising that the Swarthmore kids used to be pretty much liberal, but now uh, they... If you don't subscribe to the you know strict uh, woke line, that that's uh, that's that can be a problem, and it's it's a whole new uh, phenomenon that I'm I'm not familiar with really. That uh, I wonder about you know having to see things a certain way and making sure that it fits with what you think woke the appropriate woke is. That's that's really troubling to me. I must say. Well, and it's ahistorical um, yeah. because as a historian, as a scholar, I I ask questions about the past. I don't have a conclusion that I want to prove. Mm-hmm. And that is not the way historians do their work. And what you're describing is that there's a certain belief you have today and you want to look in the past to justify it and um, and that and, and to support it. But that is just cherry picking different examples that can support your presentist agenda. And I think what scholars do, what historians do, is that you know, we look to the, we ask questions about the past and we let the sources guide our conclusions, um, whether we like them or not. Um, we really, we do, we do the best that we can to 
you know, uncover the, the complications and the nuances and the difference, the contradictions and try to make sense of them. Uh, but we don't, uh, we don't, you know, weaponize it or cherry pick yeah. it or streamline it or streamline it to make it easy because history is not easy. It's complicated, but understanding that complication is essential for navigating the present. And I do hope that young people these days, I, ha I continue to have a fair amount of faith in the young people these days, uh, that they are interested in history and asking questions and, and letting their curiosity have some power to it. I don't know. You see it more than I do. I, I don't teach any any students right now, but, but hopefully that is there because we need that. And, you know, having a uh, historical amnesia does nobody any good. <laughs> mm -hmm. For those who just tuned yeah. in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Professor uh, Catherine Kramer Brownell, and we're talking about 24-7 uh, Politics. Her book, 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox. Uh, and you were about to say something when I interrupted. Go ahead. Oh, <laughs> I was just going to say, I also, you know, my, my students are their political beliefs across the the ideological spectrum and but you know one thing is they, they're very engaged they're very informed and they really i think in, they're very frustrated by the current political and media landscape but the great thing is that they want to change it they want to make a difference and and we we talk a lot about that and you know how can you use this knowledge about of, of the past in order to inform uh how you take action in the present and and so as you know, looking around the the, the 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 political landscape today, there's a lot to be depressed by, a lot yeah. to be angry about, to be frustrated with. But in the classroom, uh, when I see my students, they are deeply engaged um, and they're deeply determined, and and that is really rewarding to see as a scholar oh, and a professor. And as somebody who cares about democracy, yeah, I'm glad to see that as well. I must say, uh, glad to hear that that's happening there. And. Newt Gingrich, he's, he hasn't been around for a long time, but as you say, he successfully pioneered a media-driven style of obstructionist politics before 1990. Was he on to something before others in his party were? How much of a, of a lead of, in, in the vanguard was uh, uh, Newt Gingrich? Yes, he and there's this there's small group um, about seven or eight people that really kind of came together, new members of Congress from what was then considered the ideological fringe. And um, and they really came into Congress following, many of them were elected in 1978, come in in 1979, and they are aggressive in how they're thinking about running campaigns and how they're thinking about governing. They're not so interested in governing uh, yeah. the way that perhaps more senior people in the party were. They're interested in getting their ideas out there by any means necessary. Yeah. And again, they're at the fringe at this moment. So um, they, they used anything that they could, um, notably um, anything to obstruct uh, procedural, um, uh, anything procedural that they could call attention to just to get their voices into the conversation to, to shed light into their ideas um, and who they were as people. So it's not just that they had more um, uh, fringe beliefs in terms of ideological beliefs, but their style 
was very combative. Um, and it was, and that was that on purpose because they didn't want to negotiate. They didn't want to compromise, uh, because that was kind of the traditional way of doing party politics and they wanted to do something different. And that is cause of fame. And perhaps a, uh, an example of somebody who followed that uh, line of thinking uh, or way of, of working was uh, is Matt Gates, Representative Matt mm-hmm. Gates, who you know, as they all know, I mean, they're always permanent campaign, as you say, always running for re-election. Mm-hmm. I mean, never mind governing; they're running for re-election. And any time you can get on TV, get your face on TV. It doesn't matter what it is. Just get your face on TV. Matt Gates is a first-termer. What What is the message from his notoriety to new members of Congress, the backbench kids? Who I mean, what happens to seniority on that? Well, it's, again, when something uh, is deemed effective, right? And so how you define success is really important here. Um, you know, Gates and his uh, his fundraising apparatus, how that uh, really capitalized on, you know, the scene that he caused, um, that will be success in some people's playbooks. And but, you know, I think it's so again, how the, the newcomers are looking at what Gates did and they're thinking about, you know, what it how what is the path that they want? Do they want to be um, on a path to notoriety that gives them this this political celebrity that they can then turn into fundraising and then uh, some kind of post-media career. Um, And so really thinking about, um, there are a lot of messages that they could take from this and and how they define success, uh, what that path looks like, um, I think is really key. And the cameras which cover everything in Congress, C-SPAN began in Mm -hmm. 1979. And you say that they uniquely, quote, presented an opportunity for Gingrich and his allies first to create enemies and then to confront them. Whoa, Mm -hmm. is that ever uh, a big change? I I wonder if he did this consciously or it doesn't even matter. He did it and it worked. How are we seeing this today? Well, first of all, I can answer that. He did that. Gingrich did this very consciously and very purposely. One of the really fascinating archival finds um, that... I, I have in my book is um, is actually it was shared with me by another scholar, Brent Sibyl, at the University of uh, uh, Pennsylvania, and and we were talking a lot about Gingrich, and we looked at these memos that these handwritten memos that oh, Gingrich wow. had, and and they're very they're all about strategy, and it, he writes out very explicitly that you know have no shame play game play media games right i mean this is on purpose so using the c-span cameras in a way that drew attention to him by causing a spectacle was exactly the purpose and and so what happens is that so c-span starts covering in the house of representatives in 1979 right per the agreement with um with the house C-SPAN gave the House the entire control over camera placement. And um, at the time, I had Speaker Tip O'Neill, who's in charge. The Speaker's office then kind of controls the, the control room and where the camera is. And there's all this concern about the camera, you know, catching, you know, embarrassing behavior um, by, uh, by members of Congress. So they agreed that it would just focus on the Speaker in the well of the House. And that's exactly what it did. Um, however, at the end of the day, people would leave. And that was an opportunity for others to use what is called special orders uh, to to give a speech at the end of the day. 
traditionally this had been a way to get things into the congressional record, right. maybe wishing someone a happy anniversary in your district, right? It was a way just to kind of make sure that you said, oh, I, you could point to the congressional record and say, look at what I did, you know, for my constituents, my constituents. With Gingrich, it becomes about trying to appeal to a national constituency, um, not just people you know who are back in Georgia, um, but trying to connect to other people uh, with his message that is very much about um, you know lamenting against um, budgets um, and procedural rules, the authoritarian uh, procedural rules of the Democratic leadership. Um, these were all things that they would say, and so Gingrich and his allies go to the well of the house and they make these very, very long, some of them are quite boring, but um, they, they really call out um, Democrats and moderate Republicans um, um, for, for, you know, all of these different offenses. Um, and it looks, and, you know, and sometimes, you know, they, they, they dare them to challenge them, but of course no one's there. The, right. the, the house is empty, but television viewers don't know this. And so they just see this strong leader making this powerful statement and no one interrupting or challenging huh. him and assume that this is, you know, how the house is operating. And it gives a lot more attention and credit national credibility, right? He's not just someone like Gingrich is not just reaching out to his constituents. He's trying to build a national audience um, of support. And it seems it comes back to uh, that movie that I saw just recently that shocked me, Network, how, you know, just playing to the crowd and uh, in entertainment, mixing entertainment uh, with with actual news, and I do think it's it's fascinating. Uh, the previous speaker, right before Newt Gingrich, was of course the great Tip O'Neill. Not that I'm biased or anything. He what when, when <laughs> he he said to Gingrich, what was he talking about when he said to Gingrich, "It's the lowest thing that I've ever seen in my 32 years in Congress." Now that takes a lot for Speaker Tip O'Neill to to say that. But uh, was he talking about the what you were talking about being in the well mm -hmm. and making the speeches to an empty house and the people back home not knowing that's the case? What, what led up to that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, There's this really interesting moment in the beginning of uh, May 1984, and, um, and it's about, you know, foreign aid packaging. So there, you know, there's this whole debate uh, about foreign aid packaging at this moment and whether or not um, Congress was going to pass um, uh, this particular bill about foreign aid. And um, and so many, um, so Gingrich kind of goes and really attacks those people um, on the other side of the d debate, uh, you know, really calls out, calls them into question their patriotism uh, for their stance on this bill. And, and it's really interesting. Uh, I was reading through a lot of the documents and, you know, per the procedures in Congress, if you're going to directly um, uh, talk about someone and, you know, call them into a debate, you're supposed to send them a letter to let them know that you have a speech planned so that they can prepare. That letter never got to um, this office. There's a huge debate with like, you know, the letter being lost, all of that kind of stuff. But what Gingrich gets really upset because it's not a one-time thing that this had been happening time and time again. It was just this particular speech that set him off. And, um, and so the first thing that um, O'Neill does is that um, he starts to pan the camera um, when uh -huh. one of Newt Gingrich's allies, Bob Walker, is up there. So he's really angry about this incident earlier in May. 
now uh, Bob Walker is giving the speech and he orders the camera to start panning to show that it's empty. And this just launches this huge debate about camera angles and whether or not, you know, O'Neill had the right to do this. And then then it really got down to the core issue. Why why was um, uh, O'Neill doing this? Because he was angry, especially uh, angry about this pattern of behavior, but in particular, this one speech that Newt Gingrich delivered um, a, a few days earlier. And so that's where that conflict came, um, because even though it was Walker who was on screen with the original panning, the real reason that 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 pushed O'Neill over the edge to do that was because of an earlier speech by Gingrich. And that's where you have the conflict between Gingrich and um, O'Neill um, uh, in the well of the house as they were kind of debating uh, whether or not things needed, like the camera angles needed to be panned. And, yeah. and O'Neill said, yes, people have to know that you're not talking to anybody um, and to know that this is performative um, and, and to, to not a transparent way to get into house discussions but uh, just a performance just a performance and you know there's there's the, the media has its opportunity its responsibility to present the truth and the truth was that there was this guy speaking at the well but the truth was also that the chamber was empty and so you know having control over uh, what gets presented on tv as the truth yeah that's a lot of power and I, I remember, not that long ago, actually, when, you know, when we're talking about confrontational infotainment as being sort of the order of the day, I don't see Democrats doing it. And I've wondered about the advice, I believe it was Hillary Clinton, maybe I'm wrong, who urged, when they go low, we go high. That Michelle Obama. <laughs> oh, it, it, okay, it, it was uh, Michelle Obama. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. But uh, I don't think that that has worked particularly well because they keep going low and i don't know i don't see democrats doing this and how much of a disadvantage does that put us uh at well i think that going low has feeds into the conservative media ecosystem that has been really effective in terms of again not just a business model but teaching conservatives that consuming a particular type of conservative media, which again is very much about treating the opposition as an enemy um, uh, and kind of doing so in a way that po polarizes on purpose and, um, and, you know, really gets people more loyal to that, that, that conservative media brand that that is something that has been building for decades and has been a really has become part of political engagement on the right. And so there's a reason that, you know, Rush Limbaugh and Fox News followed a particular business model, but then also gained a lot of authority within the Republican Party um, because they were able to command or command is probably not the right word, but they were able to utilize um, a, a message um, that resonated uh, with their listeners and their viewers, uh, turn people out to vote on certain issues, to write member their members about certain 
um, policy issues uh, to really lament this idea and denigrate really um, the idea of compromise and um, and this notion of uh, a rhino, right? A Republican in name only. This is something that really plays well in conservative media. And, and that has allowed um, conservative media to have an influence within the Republican Party uh, that you see very significantly today. One of the things I have noticed in my research is that Democrats have kind of taken a different trajectory in, um, in their approach to media. And this is kind of a broad characterization, but as a way to kind of appeal to kind of that a big tent coalition, mm. one of the strategies that Democrats has used has been to, to turn to entertainment as a way to reach out to different voters. And what this has done is perhaps to engage a range, um, like a broader coalition of voters, but not to do so in a way that has the, the, the deeper engagement and has that loyalty that conservative media has really effectively um, been able to help cultivate um, with its viewers and listeners. And so, you know, I look at someone like Bill Clinton, he was really effective at using things like MTV as a way to bring younger voters um, into the party. Um, Barack Obama also really effectively used entertainment platforms to reach out to different demographics. So I think that there are just different styles that have taken mm. root within each of the parties. And of course, Bill Clinton, uh, when he played the saxophone, that was a big hit. You know, never mind the issues and never mind uh, uh, his questionable welfare reform package, but he, he played the saxophone, and that got some attention. People liked that. People could relate to that. And, uh, you know, I mean, Donald Trump is like the ultimate celebrity, and I hate to say, but is, is the fact that Biden is not a TV star. I mean, he, he, does, he doesn't, he's not bombastic. He doesn't project really well. Is, is the fact that he's not a TV star perhaps his biggest obstacle to re-election? And if so... You got ideas on what can be done effectively to counter that? <laughs> oh, I have learned one thing is that uh -huh. I do not predict the future. <laughs> no, for sure. Um, but, but, you know, I think that, you know, I look at someone like Joe Biden and his political career is really, again, it was, it was fostered in the Senate, right? It's, yes. it's really about, you know, it is about this negotiation and governing and kind of, you know, yes. thinking about what happens off the camera and, um, and, that can be a challenge um, to, to translate into this, you know, when you think about the reality of how political institutions are structured around that permanent campaign, it brings in um, a, a particular challenge as well. And so um, I don't have the solution. He's got a lot of high paid people that can um, yeah. can provide different solutions. Um, but I, I do think that it does kind of show that um, you've got this, this media story that has really reshaped politics over the last 40 years, really, in, in the wake of Watergate, I would say. I think Watergate is a really transformative moment. Oh, do tell. Um, that, you know, that media becomes more central to kind of bringing transparency and change. But then you also have people like Biden who come in in, um, in the 1970s and really do want to push policy in different areas um, and and kind of break down some of those barriers of the seniority system to get other types of uh, legislation done. And so these are stories that intersect um, certainly at times, uh, but they really are, um, it's really the political and media story over the last 40 years. <laughs> Yeah, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. We're talking about uh, <laughs> democracy, the uh, the uh, 
the function of democracy when it comes to uh, the media. Our guest today is uh, Catherine Kramer Brownell, who's written an article on History News Network, which I'm glad to see is reinvigorated. The article is mm-hmm. Playing to the Cameras. She's the author of 24-7 Politics, Cable Television, and the Fragmentation, Fragmenting of America from uh, Watergate to Fox News. And you mentioned how significant Watergate was in all this. I'm not, say more about that, please. Oh, I have a lot to say about Watergate. Oh, do. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I will keep it. I, I know we're we're almost out of time. I'll keep it short and sweet. Um, so I think Watergate is significant in a variety of ways. Um, you know, Watergate really does. It's for as a political story. It shows that you know political institutions had become, especially the presidency, had become so centralized and so powerful. And so with Watergate, you have Congress that really does challenge, um, challenge the presidency um, and, you know, see, it sees that, you know, Nixon had really uh, gone beyond um, his constitutional authority um, in ways that, you know, we now know are so, more, so much more expansive um, than even the evidence showed um, in Watergate, like in the Watergate investigation. And I think it's really significant that, you know, Congress did say that there are boundaries of acceptable behavior Mm -hmm. and we're going to hold the president accountable. And so that message of accountability, I think, is really key. And so in the aftermath of Watergate, you have a new generation of lawmakers who are elected to office that want to continue to bring about reform. They want to they, they see this seniority system that has defined so much of congressional operations as problematic, that that's what thwarted reform on civil rights time and time again because of the seniority of um, Uh Southern conservatives and the Democratic, and then they moved to the Republican Party. Many of them moved to the Republican Party. So they see that the system of seniority really made made, uh, national institutions unresponsive to people. So they they tried to change it. And so they wrote new rules that, again, tried to decentralize um, political authority in some ways, um, allow new voices to shape legislation. And so that's one significant change with Watergate. The other one that I have seen is that it plays the, the media environment plays a key role in Watergate. That you know the the TV networks televised um, these hearings all day. Um, oh, they true. rotated coverage, um, but you know so there's there's this nonstop coverage um, attention to public affairs, and and many people saw TV as bringing this transparency. Um, they celebrated the role of television in um, uh, in politics, even as many senators became celebrities um, uh, for their role oh, in interesting. it. They the the conversation around television was a celebration that it brought accountability, it brought transparency, it allowed the American people to be a part of a real of a, of a constitutional crisis and to believe in the integrity of the process. And so I think it shows that there is this hope that TV could deliver for democracy um, that, that comes in the aftermath of Watergate. And that's used, by the way, in a lot of uh, regulatory conversations to push for the expansion of cable television uh, and saying that, again, something like C-SPAN will bring transparency um, to allow people to connect to their elected officials, connect to what's going on in Washington, D.C., 
But again, it's also used when you have more transparency, more decentralization, you have figures that use it to their advantage and, and try to manipulate that coverage as well. Yeah, and I can see how in, in complicated and uh, highly emotional issues like uh, the Israeli war in Gaza right now, that there, the media does cover I mean, they can't help it because the, the the people who are saying, hey, what what Israel is doing is not so good here. They're getting some coverage and people are seeing not just the official line coming from Washington. So you said earlier that you were an optimist and it's, it's good to talk to somebody who knows history uh, who can still be optimistic. Say a little bit more about some of the re and and you give some hints about your reasons for optimism. I wonder if you could say a little bit more on that because I always like to leave on a uh, positive note. I, I think I've I've said this before, but I will reiterate. I'm an optimist because of my students. Um, they are are deeply engaged. They're very interested in history. And they're very interested in, they, they, they don't buy into a lot of the culture uh -huh. wars around history that are currently happening. They think it's shocking and they're even confused. Why would people want to ban books? This is ridiculous. Why can't we read them for ourselves, right? Like, so they don't buy into a lot of oh, the heated um, partisan uh, climate. Um, and they really are pushing for change. Uh, a lot of times they're frustrated with, the people that represent them and and want to be that change. A lot of them are interested in going into politics. And to me, that's really interesting because I'd say a decade ago, many of my students uh, weren't as passionate about wanting to go into politics. Huh. Um, and so it's really interesting. Um, and so I, they, they're unhappy with the, the climate, but they want to change it. And I think that, um, you know, my students take history seriously um, and, they they understand the complexity of history. And so to me, that leaves me with a lot of optimism. And then the one other thing I would add is that I think that there is, as a scholar, I, I see that there's a lot of frustration about our current political and our media environment. And I think kind of a, a fear that it can't change, that this is just the way it is and it's gonna get worse and worse and worse. And it likely could. Um, but mm. I, I, it takes me back to this moment in the early 1970s when people were also very frustrated with the political establishment. You've got the war in Vietnam. You've got Watergate, right? Like you've, you've got a lot of cynicism, um, a lot of frustration. Um, and they were also very unhappy with the media landscape that, again, really limited who could have a say in public affairs and who could be on TV, who could shape public understanding. And that world has completely changed. Um, and so policy, there were a lot of different policy changes that were implemented and no one in the early 1970s probably thought that the big three networks uh, could have all of this competition. And, and so I think we have new challenges today, um, but rethinking certain assumptions that are undergirding our political and media landscapes today is really necessary to come up with more productive solutions moving forward. Oh, it's so good to hear. The, name, the title of the book is 24-7 Politics, Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News, put out by Princeton Press in the year 2023. Our guest has been its author, Professor of History, Catherine Cameron Brownell. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, yeah, so TV has had negative and positive effects and people demanding uh, that uh, 
perhaps demanding more that government actually serve their interests. Uh, maybe TV can, as you say, deliver for democracy. Thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. We're doing what we can. Thank you so much for having me. All right. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.